you know, my hope is we can get SB 1130 done this year on an expedited basis, free up the agency to really remedy these harms, and as well as free up the capacity of local governments that are kind of in a war room footing right now to explore their options to, to build up their own networks. Welcome to episode 409 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Jess Delfiaco, Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. In today's episode, Christopher talks with Ernesto Falcone, Senior Legislative Counsel at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Ernesto gives Christopher a brief history of the organization, and the two discuss the Electronic Frontier Foundation's involvement in repealing California's municipal broadband preemption. Ernesto also talks about the California Advanced Services Fund program, why so many people have been left without internet access during the pandemic, and what the future of connectivity looks like. Here's Christopher talking with Ernesto Falcone of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Christopher Mitchell from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota, talking with someone who's a bit warmer, a bit sunnier. Ernesto Falcone, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Ernesto, you're not only in the the California area, you just have a very bright disposition, I've noticed over the years. You are the uh, Senior Legislative Counsel for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which most people know as EFF. Just a little bit of background, what's EFF? Yeah, so the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we're a, a nonprofit public interest law firm, meaning we do representation for free on issues impacting uh, First Amendment, Fourth Amendment rights, uh, as well as a handful of technology policy issues that impact speech and privacy. We are basically three different teams, you know, lawyers, engineers, and activists, and we've been around for 30 years. We were about to hit our 30th year anniversary, and the origin of EFF when we started was you know, the internet was coming, technology was coming, and how do we protect what we what we have now in terms of our rights and our and, and our ability to communicate and share with one another as becomes more digital? Yeah, and those fights have kind of spiraled in many different directions. And my special area of focus with EFF is uh, broadband access and kind of what's the future of access to make sure everyone has the same high-speed access that they deserve. How did you come to that? So I have always tinkered with uh, technology uh, growing up. You know, so I, I was born in 1981. So there's a time when, you know, as a kid, you, you're playing with, with video games and computers and, and people or your, your adults would tell you, like, that's not a thing you could do for a living. <laughs> so because it just wasn't <laughs> right. People didn't, you know, people didn't think that was possible. The Internet didn't really exist. And then it became dial up. And, you know, I just kept up with the hobbies. And eventually the hobbies turned into a, a career. Uh, I went to the political space right after college, did some some campaign work and realized that's not exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to really focus on the technology policy, which was still kind of in its infancy, and went to Washington, D.C. and worked in Congress. Did that for six years. And during that time, you had uh, the big final net neutrality. That was in 2005, which really convinced me this is the direction I wanted to go. Uh, I eventually joined a nonprofit uh, consumer group called Public Knowledge, and we went to law school out Never in California. Never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, made my way out to law school uh, after that because I was surrounded by a lot of lawyers that I thought were doing brilliant work, and I wanted to be one too. And you know, and from that point, I met Corinne McShury, who's the legal director of, of EFF. Yeah, she's been on the show maybe three years ago or so. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I worked with her in D.C. and I talked to her, you know, to get advice about what to do. I wanted to stay in the policy work, didn't want to litigate as a lawyer, but I still wanted to stay in California. And it was just fortuitous that EFF was also trying to bulk up its uh, policy and legislative work. Prior to that, it was mostly focused on litigation and kind of making progress on that front. But uh, there are limits to that. And some of these fights have to be fought in the halls of Congress as well as in state legislatures. And so that was my primary reason to be hired at EFF in uh, 2015 now. 
And that's where you and I started crossing paths on a more regular basis was around uh, uh, AB 1999, which uh, was almost two years ago now, I guess. That's right. When uh, the, California became one of the few states to repeal preemption. It was, a, it was a pretty minor issue, but I'm really excited you led the fight to make sure that it, they got rid of it. You want to just tell us what, what that was about? Yeah, absolutely, and 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 it's always been great to 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 work with you and your, your the or, and all the great work your organization does because I think it it is proven what industry has tried to convince uh, law lawmakers is not possible, which is we don't have to depend on them; we could just build it ourselves. So so for background for folks, so AB 1999 was a law that uh, that happened at the exact same time, or or I guess, I guess shortly after. Uh, the FCC repealed net neutrality in 2017. So 2017, that happens towards the end of the year or you know, towards the middle of the year, and the states start responding on what to do about broadband access at home. We had a, a big fight on California on net neutrality as uh, a law called SB 822. And at the same time, we had this parallel fight on municipalities and them you know, and, and local government building its own open networks that, that were not that were net neutral as well. And that's AB 1999. And the trick that the industry pulled off in California, because it's never a frontal assault on the idea that no one else should build something but us. It's always these kind of uh, silly side arguments. And, and the argument there was, you know, you should allow private industry to to buy public assets if they build a broadband network as a means to ensure that private investment you know, is robust and, and not driven out by the public sector. And in effect, what it actually did was made the public sector take the risk of, of how to provide service in difficult to serve markets. And if they were able to pull it off, which thanks to the work of your organization kind of showing this has happened everywhere, you know, once they've proven it's, how, it, it's doable, it's, it's actually financially feasible. Oh, and then lo and behold, a private company want, will buy it out to um, absorb the profits that would have gone back to the uh, taxpayer. It's just hard to imagine why anyone would have thought that was a, a good idea, even at the time. <laughs> it's just, yep. it's it's pretty nuts to think that you would basically force a community to sell something that, that they had built. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of shenanigans that these companies pull, but a lot of times it's more complicated than just saying, nope, we're just, it doesn't matter how popular it is. There's no recourse. The public just has to get rid of it. That's exactly right. And there's just a lack of understanding. And, and and that that's starting to disappear little by little, I think more so this year than ever before. But a lack of understanding of the role of the public sector in, in broadband access. You go back five years, six years ago, and, and most people thought, you know, you really just had to rely on figuring out how to get the private companies to build everywhere. And it's it's become obviously a great number of people, but that's not happening. And and the number of people who are deniers of that reality are are dwindling. Well, the the thing I find really interesting, and, and I don't know how much of this you saw, but I'm sure you've heard stories even if you didn't see it yourself. It used to be that it seemed like AT&T owned the legislature. You know, I mean, people often associate AT&T more with ruling Republican-led legislatures. You think about Marsha Blackburn, who was surgically grafted onto AT&T, you know, um, but in, in California for a long time, AT&T was very popular with the Democrats. They They basically got what they wanted. And lately, it seems like that's changed quite a bit. It's changing, uh, but it's taking an, an extraordinary amount of grassroots work to make that happen. You know, I think the the industry, really led by AT&T in Sacramento, do get a lot of what they want because the amount of money they give the California Democratic Party is fairly prolific, and the number of relationships that are built from that uh, are pretty pervasive. And, and quite frankly, the the ignorance of of a handful of legislators, I would say a great number of them, of you know, this industry is not really leading us to the bright future to keep promising. You know, kind of hand in hand in, in terms of the legislative favors and regulatory favors is always this promise of 
you do this for us and we will deploy in your unserved or underserved market. And, uh, you know, we're at 2020 now. I remember I had a conversation with a staffer just a week ago about, you know, about this dynamic. And I said, you know, by this point, I think we, you know, we're Charlie and the football's been pulled enough times, right? And and the staffer couldn't help but laugh because it's, it's just undeniable. So I want to skip over a lot of the really good work you've done on net neutrality and some other tech issues and focus on some recent developments. The California Advanced Services Fund, I think it might help to just start with a little primer on what, what exactly is CASF? Certainly. So California is one of few states that directly finances the infrastructure of broadband or, or at least uh, high-speed internet access. And I'll explain why I make a distinction there in a sec. But we, we created this program to kind of work in parallel with federal efforts to build out uh, internet access to difficult to serve markets, usually rural, but at times urban and, you know, you know in, in related markets. But the problem has been the, the program, you know, has set its targets so low that it's, it's kind of hamstrung at the moment. And it's kind of particularly noticeable at a time when uh, a vast number of Californians need high-speed access, in, in particularly in these rural markets, but we're all ordered to stay at home under COVID-19. So right now, if I live in rural California and I'm pulling down eight megabits down and, and one megabit up, or even probably, honestly, a fraction of that, but it's advertised as being that, then I'm not eligible for the California Advanced Services Fund's subsidies to get better networks, right? That's right. So the trick is when they originally created uh, CASIF, which is the acronym for the California Advanced Services Fund, was meant to look at markets that were 6.5 megabits per second down and I believe 1.5 up. Uh, it was it was actually doing fairly decent work. It was it was financing fiber and public housing. It was building out uh, middle mile open access fiber networks. It was doing such good work that it was running out of money. And so the legislature, in order to pass a new financing of the program it takes a two-thirds vote that's how it's structured there the industry held enough influence to you know makes it hard for a 50 percent plus one vote to get done and so a lot of bargains and compromises were struck with uh, particularly with frontier and at&t leading the discussions here on the premise that okay if you lower the threshold of what is served to six megabits download one megabit upload and this is 2017 uh, right, not ancient history, pretty yeah. recent. <laughs> this is this is three years ago when the federal government two years prior said twenty five three was the definition of broadband. Uh, yet companies telling legislators in Sacramento, you know, six one seems good enough. We shouldn't be subsidizing or putting money into ne neighborhoods that have DSL, basically. The trick behind that strategy was effectively to make it impossible for the state to build out high capacity networks. Because lo and behold, when the government did its uh, data analysis about what areas don't have 6.1, it, it is very difficult to find areas that are complete deserts of 6 megabits down, 1 megabit up. And, and, and the trick with CASIF with and the way they structured it was if you had a small handful of households in an area with that connectivity, even like you know, you're an anchor institution like a hospital or a school, then you can't really serve the area because that area has internet access, therefore it's not worthy of state funding. And so the end product of that was in the last bid for that put out $360 million of California money to build broadband, uh, only about 30 million of it was was applied for because there's just not a way to cohesively make a, a bid under the uh, criteria that the, the ISPs established. 
Right. I, I think it may help to illustrate if I just make up some numbers, which I think people accuse me of doing too often. But it, let's just assume for a second, you know, there's 40 million people in California. There might be a million people that don't have that connectivity or 500,000 or whatever it is, but they don't all live next to each other, right? California is also a big place. And so you have like 30 people here, 10 people there, and, and you can't put a business model together on the basis of that. That's exactly right, because net networks are meant to be, you know, holistic in terms of the, the deployment. You know, you're casting a net to capture as many of the payers into that net to help finance the construction. But what the data showed, you know, as EFF looked at the maps of what, what is a 6-1 and non-6-1 area, it's effectively Swiss cheese. It's a whole bunch of tiny little pockets spread throughout the state, uh, and it misses the fact that, you know, you probably have areas that have 10-1 that are being excluded, and, and that's an inferior, uh, you know, speed for any of the needs that people have today. You know, and so it's just like a situation where it's not surprised that despite a bunch of money being available uh, for bid, you know, these are grants, so they're covering 50% of the cost. It's a, it's a very attractive offer, but no one could really figure out how to financially put together a cohesive package in a Swiss cheese matter. Networks don't operate that way. Okay, so that's what has led to case of actually having extra money right now. Um, although the legislature could always put more money in there to, to supplement it. What is happening to improve the program in order to make sure that you're actually financing better networks rather than just watching money accrue small amount of interest? <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, so something that EFF has studied thoroughly uh, in the last handful of years is you know what does a 21st century internet look like? Uh, what what is a universal, affordable, high-speed network that's good for not just now but the next generation and generations after? And and the conclusion is fiber uh, and fiber to the home and and as much as as far as you can go, which which quite frankly a lot we could do a lot if the will and the focus was there. Now you know how do you write quote unquote fiber uh, into a, a broadband finance program? You know you really look at projects that should be you know, one once built uh, useful for future upgrades at, uh, on the cheap in order to keep up with the increasing demands of internet access. Often a challenge in, I think, in in policy, both federal and state, has been we try to build out what's good right now uh, in terms of internet access and without any sort of recognition of the speed limit that comes with that choice. And that often plays into the hands of the old incumbents who, you know, quite frankly, can upgrade their old stuff you know, incrementally uh, on the cheap. And that's attractive, but it's also uh, has a, a pretty clear dead end. As long as they're writing the, the laws. I mean, I was I was comparing, you know, upgrades of DSL. You know, it doesn't really help us get to a higher quality network because it's a dead end, as you just said. You know, it would be like telling someone, well, just keep upgrading your bike and sooner or later it will turn into a moving van. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yep. And, and and especially when, uh, you know, someone has already invented the the moving van that's cheaper to run. You know, and it it's and it's getting better by the day. It's just one of those things where communities that don't have next generation high capacity networks being built are in real danger of joining the unserved communities in the sense of eventually services and applications that we use. Like I think COVID-19 story is, is like Zoom and other video conferencing exploding in usage. You can't do that if you don't have a decent upload uh, and you can't do that if you don't have a decent download. And so suddenly your formerly known as broadband connection has become the dial up. And, you know, none of us willfully use dial-up as a means to connect to the internet right now. You know, that that's the that's the worry uh, EFF has about the lack of access kind of growing as a result of next generation application services that are that are really beneficial to people to use, uh, being out of reach because one, you don't have access at, you know, even at a minimum a cable monopoly. Uh, you know, what does that mean to society in terms of democratic participation, education and all the other uh, very important values that that you know the government should be prioritizing. 
So let's talk about a, a bill that, that you're kind of shepherding in some ways, uh, a bill that uh, State Senator Gonzalez has put forth, SB 1130. What will that do to try to fix the problem you've just been describing? Yeah, so uh, Senator Lena Gonzalez and EFF have been working together on, on, on the bill that she produced. And the idea behind it is let's let's set a minimum standard of 25 megabits down, 25 megabits up, you know, so symmetrical uploads and downloads because people are generating as much content going out now as they are in with a requirement of low latency, you know, because uh, the capacity to make it near real-time interactivity is really important right now. And set that as a standard of what is served and unserved. And what that should do is uh, markets that have you know competition between fiber and cable, markets that have uh, you know fairly upgraded fiber coaxial hybrid cable uh, systems, probably would fall above that number on average. And then the markets that are still either with nothing or completely reliant on DSL would be eligible for for an upgrade. This would you know ideally allow a lot of the local governments that have been you know kind of clamoring at the bit to you know, take a bond out and build out their own infrastructure, as well as a handful of small private companies that are are eager to keep spam, but they just they just don't have the the vast reservoirs of capital themselves to to build out on their own to help solve this problem of not only the digital divide, but but also what EFF calls the speed chasm between legacy networks and uh, fi- uh, networks back to fiber. You mentioned the the issue around symmetry, um, that people produce so much more than they used to. I think you said they produce as much as they consume. I, I can imagine that some people, particularly folks who really believe WISPs are the next best step to, to solve this, which are often um, can be symmetrical, but in rural areas are more often asymmetrical, it seems, even though they're higher capacity. Um, they may say, no, uh, people still download a whole lot more than they upload. And so why would 25 symmetrical be the, the standard? Yeah, you know, the only reason people download more than they upload is because that's what they're being sold. You know, something I have to, I often run into when we talk to policymakers at the federal and state level, when they, they think about what the future broadband speed should look like, and I see numbers like, what about 100 up, down, and 20 up? And I pause them and I say, you have to understand the asymmetry has absolutely nothing to do with broadband as a technology and has everything to do with the fact that cable television distribution networks were converted into cable modems and cable networks and cable uh, information networks. No, Ernesto, I actually prefer to upload to Dropbox using a much slower connection. I I could do it at 100 megabits, but I really like to upload to Dropbox at 20 megabits. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so, you know, it's just like, you know, it, it's part of the history of why there's been asymmetry and why the new networks that get built, particularly when they have uh, you know fiber and plenty of, of spectrum capacity available, uh, are perfectly able to do symmetrical distribution of, of information. And and that's a preferred route. I mean, at the end, you know, if we want people to be able to start a business at home, for example, you know, you, you need them to be able to communicate with their customers and their followers if they're, if they're like an artist of sorts in a way that is uh, robust. And there's no reason why the technology can't just, the technology doesn't support that. It, it does. It's just policy sometimes thinks, looks too much at what the current industry is doing without a recognition of what the technology is capable of. Well, I, I would add on to that by noting the cable companies increasingly are going to be able to do symmetrical with upgrades. It will cost them money. Uh, they'll have to invest in it. But I mean, historically, I think we've had asymmetry in policy just to accommodate DSL and to some extent cable. And and I don't know the, how much longer we want to keep doing that. Yeah, I mean, if policy is doing the right thing in terms of, of what it's, what you know, taking a big step back, the point of federal policy has been from the 90s is is universality, competition, affordability. And if those things are happening, which which are not in a great many places right now, which means we have to really rethink some of the larger policies here. If they were working 
the cable companies would eventually become fiber companies. The WISP would eventually, convert, you know, would finance eventually into, you know, full-fledged fiber companies as well. Like, basically, everyone would eventually adopt the same type of high-capacity networks and try and figure out how to how to go further and higher and beyond. But, yeah, exactly right. We're tethered to to the legacy, to the past. And, and you know, the real tragedy in that is the European Union is not doing that. The Chinese are not doing that. The South Koreans and Japanese are not doing that. You know, all the other countries that we compete with on, on a whole host of fronts have, have long moved past this kind of dynamic. And, uh, you know, they're building universal fiber. I mean, that's their goals. Well, if there's one thing that I can tell you as I sit here in my home interviewing you in your home during business hours, it's that we have very good information on what the future will be like. And we should we should assume there will be no shocks in which suddenly having a mere two or three megabits will be a significant pull on the economy because of people trying to work from home while their children are schooling from home and, and all kinds of other um, challenges right now. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. One thing I think sometimes media might miss is COVID-19 isn't, uh, what it's showing us in terms of internet access is what, what the near future looks like. It's not necessarily, this is only the one-time blip and it won't be this bad in the future. No, this is this is what it was heading towards anyway, as as we all start moving to like remote computing and, and cloud computing and you know remote education, things like that. And there, there are going to be a greater number of have and have-nots that have always been there. It's just now it's much more pronounced. So let me ask you one other question, which is something that um, opponents of the bill are definitely raising as well. But, you know, we have on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars. If you define the problem in California as being those who don't have 25 symmetrical, that's a multi-billion dollar problem to solve. What happens when the money runs out? So I think, you know, it, it's, it, well, one, you're absolutely right in terms of the larger scope of the challenge. Two, the investment is worth it uh, because you know we, it'll pay itself off uh, because everyone needs the access, and uh, and it's going to be good for long past my lifetime. You know, to them, I say, okay, yeah. So cost, you, you tell me, cost? Oh, it's going to be two or three or four billion dollars. I said that's fine. I mean, because at the end of the day, everyone needs this. Uh, it's essential to the future. It's essential to this economy, and it'll it'll be valued many times the investment within its usable lifetime. I think if we don't get more of in the initial dollar methods there, uh, or as that money starts running out, I, I suspect what will happen is legislators will see the great benefits that are occurring as a result of, of the initial investment, and it actually won't run out of money. Uh, it will it will simply be, uh, you know, additional funds will be re-added, you know, over time to keep it going until until the job is done. You know, I think that's just the story of, of many of these efforts is w once you launch an initiative of sorts and the government sees this is really doing a lot of good, it's very difficult politically to then say, well, okay, I guess we're done, you know, or like, let's just, let's just fold up our chairs now. You know, everyone sees the value in this. Well, I think that's also a reminder of the importance of taking seriously how these programs are structured, making sure the rules are right. Um, because sometimes people make assumptions that, that because something is, uh, is has a really good intent, it'll be implemented well. And <laughs> I think one of the reasons we're having a crisis in government is many of the government programs that have been slandered have been done so unnecessarily. But there have been um, a number of programs that have been designed not as well, and sometimes because industry specifically gets in there to try to monkey wrench it. You know, we, we saw this with the with the um, stimulus uh, 10 years ago, where the um, the big companies really fought hard to make sure that the money went almost entirely to middle mile. And then years later, they said, look, we hardly connected any homes. This was a wasted yep. program. <laughs> and you're like, well, you didn't let us connect homes. Of course, we didn't connect many homes. <laughs> 
Yep. Yep. And I remember, I mean, as a, you know, as a legislative staff, and I remember Verizon's big argument was, you know, we really have to focus on the middle mile. Middle mile is really important. And, and they're not wrong in that, but it's, it's similar to, you know, so long as you're not building something that uh, disrupts what we want, which is, uh, you know, our monopoly markets where we exist as monopoly or, you know, creates what I would say uh, expertise and knowledge from an alternative provider that can be a bigger competitor over time. You know, that, that's kind of the looming that the, all of these companies fear. So let's let's end up with uh, talking um, about what uh, Case F is doing, um, just to deal with the immediate onslaught right now of of trying to make sure people have some sort of connections. What's because uh, <laughs> I'm on the dockets, I get tons of emails. I haven't had any time to jump in, but what's the the argument been about lately? So uh, Commissioner uh, Guzman at the CPC. So we have five commissioners at the CPC, and, and Guzman's really a leader on thinking about kind of future networks and what's a 21st century internet look like. And so she she led an effort to inquire what should CASIF do in response to COVID-19? Should there be any changes to the program and, and as a result of uh, the challenges people have? And, and those challenges really are, uh, I think, very tethered to remote education. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest driving co- things that are happening here in this, in this state because our schools have been closed for uh, almost two months. There's questions of whether we open in the summer to try and make up the time. There's questions of how do we open at all in the fall if this isn't resolved and and the need to ensure every kid can ha- get access to their homework and to their teachers is, is a driving force. You know, you have you know, schools trying to give out hotspots as a temporary band-aid, which is really frustrating in that the only reason they have to do is because the infrastructure is not there. You have the school board association, you know, related to all this. They they are putting out a potential uh, ballot measure at the November this year for two billion dollars in just just on connectivity to try and make sure every student can get access to public education. You know, the CPC is trying to figure out what to do with KSF as a means to address this. And you know, what's fascinating is, um, you know, so EFF commented on this proceeding because uh, it's on an emergency expedited basis of you know. Whatever you do, don't finance networks that are not up to the task of remote education and, and distance work and, and, and social distancing in general. You know, there's this New York Times piece that came out, and and we're seeing more and more data show this. Those those legacy networks, the DSL networks, and even some of the cable network networks are are degrading from the increased usage, which is insane in the sense of okay, so everyone is using the internet, they're sold, and now the networks can't actually deliver said products that they're advertised at, whereas on the other end, my understanding is, is every you know local government or private company that's doing fiber fiber directly to people uh, has had zero challenge meeting the increased needs. And so, you know, again, part of EFF's effort with the law uh, and the legislation SB 1130 is to focus on high capacity future proof networks. You know, it's just to prevent money to going to you know slightly upgrading networks that are still not up to the task even with the state money because it's a waste. It is a is a monumental waste. To, to build up something that is not going to be ready and uh, just because we're going to have to replace it anyway uh, with, with what we should have done from the, from the start. And so where is that? Is um, um, ready to implement something or is there still ongoing rulemaking? Um, what, what exactly is happening next regarding you know, their ability to respond to COVID-19? Well, yeah, the California Public Utility Commission, uh, which over which governs and administrates uh, CASIF, you know, they they're in a tough spot because you know they can help on getting devices and and access into the equipment in terms of working with industry and and working with the schools and trying to form partnerships. Um, but in terms of direct financing of the infrastructure to solve the problem, they have the statutory limits that the uh, the 2017 law that AT&T Frontier helped draft have placed on them. And so what's 
what's ironic and kind of uh, bitter in in this is you know you have big companies like uh, Crown Castle, for example, it's a it's a multi-billion-dollar fiber company, saying you should be doing a minimum standard of 2525 for eligible areas, you know, in order to correctly you know ascertain which areas are insufficiently served for today's needs. And lo and behold, the cable companies and telephone companies, uh, the big ones, that is, the old ones, who helped write that law say, absolutely not. You're legally not allowed to do that because that's what the law says. And, oh, yeah, because that's the law we helped write. You know, my hope is we can get SB 1130 done this year on an expedited basis, free up the agency to really remedy these harms, and as well as free up the capacity of local governments that are kind of in a war room footing right now to explore their options to, to build out their own networks, as well as a lot of, I think, very good intended uh, small private companies that are trying their best to work with their local communities to figure this out too. Well, I hope we get there. I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks for taking time today to fill us in. Absolutely. Always happy to do it. I always uh, love listening to the program. That was Christopher talking with Ernesto Falcone of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at mininetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at mininetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow mininetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at mininetworks. Subscribe to this and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arna Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 409 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.